G'day, I'm Tom Switzer and I'm the Executive Director here at the Centre for Independent Studies. Now for decades, we at CIS have been a fiercely independent voice, working tirelessly to deliver evidence-based public policy. We rely solely on the generosity of people like you for donations to advance our classical liberal cause. Check out the links on screen now to see how you can get involved with CIS and to get notified of future videos. Make sure you subscribe and click the notification bell. Now, as Canberra deals with an angry Beijing, the tit-for-tat diplomatic row between China and the United States, well, that's just deepened. The friction does not just reflect a bullying communist regime's opacity concerning the outbreak of the coronavirus, nor is it the result of a chaotic Trump administration trying to distract attention from its own failures in curbing the virus. Something much deeper and much worse is at stake. A potential clash between what two great powers perceive to be their vital national interests. Now this is obviously important for a country such as Australia because China is by far a most important trade partner, whereas the United States is by far our most important security ally. So to address these issues, we're delighted to host Alan DuPont. Alan is one of Australia's leading strategic thinkers. He's CEO of the geopolitical risk consultancy, the Cognoscenti Group. And Alan is the author of this new CIS publication, which we're delighted to publish. It's titled Mitigating the New Cold War, Managing US-China Trade, Tech and Geopolitical Conflict. Alan, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much. It's and pleasure, tell us from the start, succinctly summarise your CIS thesis. Yes, well, I guess my primary argument is, Tom, that um, the trade, tech and geopolitical conflict between the United States and China has taken us into a new Cold War. Uh, it foreshadows a heightened period of geopolitical volatility, but more than that, it's actually going to affect on the downside, the whole international system, from trade to technology, uh, and including geopolitics, obviously. And that this is likely to be a protracted dispute, a rivalry between the US and China, that's going to affect the whole world and including Australia in many ways. So that's my primary argument. And, and I, perhaps I should just explain a little bit of what I mean by a Cold War. So I differentiate between a Cold War and a hot war in the sense that, uh, Neither the US or China want to have a military conflict. Uh, they, they realise the risk is too great. So we're likely to have a kind of festering um, conflict between the two uh, where you'll have outbreaks of disputes, not just geopolitically, for example, like in the South China Sea or in other, in other, uh, other arenas, but it's going to affect their trade relationship uh, the manufacturing relationship, education, tourism, everything, because it's a systemic competition. It's not just over trade or over tech. It's over, really the central question is, which of these two countries is going to be the dominant country in the 21st century? That's what it's about. Okay, so a new Cold War, and yet it's been 30 years since the end of the first uh, Cold War. And during much of that three decade period, as you well know, the strategic consensus in much of the West was one of engagement with China. 
the argument was, as Robert, Del- Robert Zellick, uh, a senior policymaker in the both Bush administrations put it, China would become a responsible stakeholder the more that it integrated into the international system, the more capitalist it becomes, it would become more democratic, more liberal, and its rise would be benign. How do we get to this stage of a new Cold War then? Yes, I know it's surprising to a lot of people, but um, as with most wars, the genesis precedes it by many, many years. So if you, the short answer to your question is that um, in the early 2000s, I think the Chinese government made a decision that if they were going to be the great power that they once were historically, they needed to be able to compete with the United States across all domains of power. So they needed to build up their military, they needed to become an economic power, unlike the Soviet Union. The reason why the Soviet Union lost the first Cold War is it couldn't compete with the United States um, uh, economically. Uh, so the Chinese learned from that mistake and they realized that the source of US's power is not its military, it's not its aircraft carriers and nuclear weapons, its capacity to set the global rules for economics, finance and tech setting the rules and making the things that people want to buy is the real source of US power. So they realized they had to be able to compete with the US across the board and then surpass them if they wanted to be number one, which they clearly do. And that's very, very evident uh, in the pronouncements that the Chinese leadership have made over the last five, 10 years. They've made no secret of that fact. So they're now putting into place that strategy and they've got to the point now where they are a near peer equal with the United States. And in fact, in some cases, they've probably got their noses ahead, some areas of technology and manufacturing and so on. And now the United States is pushing back under the Trump administration. But it's not just Trump. There is a bipartisan consensus in Washington that if the US doesn't do anything, it will become subordinate to China. And so will the rest of the world. So this is not just the US pushing back, but many other countries too. We want to trade with China. We recognize that it's a great power, but we don't want to be subordinate to China, particularly because it's an authoritarian state. One clear distinction between the two Cold Wars is that the West uh, had a very limited trade relationship with Moscow, whereas, as you know, we're, we're more economically interdependent with China. Many scholars would say that's precisely a reason why uh, any ch- prospect of uh, tension or conflict between Washington and Beijing is very limited. Mm. Well, I take the opposite view. So this is the dependence argument. So a lot of people argue that if you're trading with a neighbour and another power, even a competitor, it's less likely that you have conflict with them because the costs of conflict are too great and the benefits of trade uh, essentially trump that, okay? But another way of looking at this is that despite Uh, dependencies, you can still have war. If you look back in 1914, when Germany was rising, challenging Britain, they had a very strong growing trade relationship, yet they went to war in 1914. So I think it's a mistake to conclude that because you you have a good economic relationship with the country, you're not going to have conflict with them. That's not necessarily the case. Now, the other point I would make is this, that There's a difference between trading with a country and being mutually interdependent and becoming overly dependent on a country. Now, the US concern is become over dependent on China in a whole range of strategic industries to the detriment of the United States. That China has got where it is at the expense of the US, not with the US. So the responsible stakeholder argument by Robert Zellick is that, you know, 
if the US and China work together in a Western-designed order, China can be a responsible stakeholder. But China doesn't want to be in the Western order. It wants to set the rules of the new global order. So you don't think then that a new trade relationship between uh, Washington and Beijing will get the relationship back on track? No, I don't think so, unfortunately. So we've already had an interim trade agreement in January this year. Um, that was really picking the low-hanging fruit. There was easy stuff. And even that, I don't think, is going to be fully realised. You know? So would a trade deal, a comprehensive trade deal, let's be optimistic, would that solve the problem? Not at all, because the problem is not about trade. As I said, it's, it's about a contest between two diametrically opposed systems. So there's an ideological element in this as well. It's not just about two great powers fighting to who's going to be number one, as we've seen many times in history. The differences in terms of their values are so vast that it's very difficult for me to see how they can coexist peacefully uh, unless they can reach an accommodation with each other on their strategic interests. Okay, now you mentioned that one of the few areas of bipartisanship in Washington is this question of China and how to deal with it. Both Democrats and Republicans, their attitudes are clearly hardening. But is there anything really all that odd about China's rise? I mean, Kishore Mahbubani and John Mearsheimer, although they express themselves in different ways, they obviously disagree about a lot about this question, they nevertheless agree that China is rising just like other great powers have risen. That is, that as their power increases, their definition of their national interests grows and they start to assert a sphere of influence in areas on which their future prosperity and stability depend. Um, a sphere of influence is a, a great power badge of honour. Uh, what's so different about China, Alan? Yes, well, look, that's a very good point. And I agree with Mishima and Mabubani up to a point, but that's only half the story. So where I agree with them is that if you look back over the last 500 years, um, you will see many examples of an incumbent power, the big power of the day, being challenged. And that's, that's what we call in international relations sort of the structural problem in, inter, in international affairs where the incumbent power feels threatened by the rise of the challenger. Thucydides talked about this in the Peloponnesian Wars. You know, when uh, Sparta was the incumbent power, Athens was rising, Sparta felt threatened and they went to war because Sparta felt threatened by Athens. The Athenians didn't think they were threatening Sparta, but that's how the Spartans saw it. So in a sense, what we're seeing is reflecting what happened structurally throughout history. Mm -hmm. Now, the difference is this, that, um, and this is why I'm calling it a Cold War. This is not just about two great powers uh, fighting off to be who's number one. Both the United States and China think of themselves as exceptional powers. There's a lot written about this. They're not just ordinary great powers, they're exceptional great powers. And exceptional great powers have an ordained right to be the leaders of the world. That's a, I'm summarising sim simply here. And so the other problem there is that if not only do the US and China both think they should be number one, but they both uh, are quite different political systems. One's an authoritarian state and the other's a democracy. And so there are parallels with the first Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States. They're not just two. So this is not just your ordinary great power conflict. Okay, well, what do we do? I mean, this is part of your thesis. How, how do we mitigate against the worst case outcomes? How do 
the leaders in Washington and Beijing, and these in your words, accommodate each other's interests because that won't be easy given everything you've just said. Sure. You're absolutely right. And uh, sometimes I'm asked, am I pessimistic or optimistic about the immediate future? And I am pessimistic because I acknowledge that bringing the US and China together right at the moment is going to be extremely difficult, if not impossible. However, you've got to look beyond the current tensions and ask yourself this question. If nobody does anything, then this is only going to get worse. And the problem with a Cold War is it could ignite into a hot war. Uh, we, we, there were a couple of close calls during the first Cold War, right? Miscalculations, accidents, exactly. things miscalculations like that. miscalculations and so on. So doing nothing is not an option. And certainly for the rest of the world, if the US and China can't come together to resolve their differences, then other countries need to actually show a bit of leadership too, including middle powers like Australia, for example. There is now an opening for them to show a bit of leadership to help bring the US and China together, or if that's not possible, to mitigate the worst case outcomes of a Cold War or a potential hot war. Okay, let's deal with some of your recommendations. You suggest that Washington and Beijing work towards verifiable agreements that prescribe cyber theft of commercial IP and establish new rules for internet governance. How does that work? Well, okay. The internet and the cyber world is like the Wild West. Uh, there are <laughs> hardly any rules. That's right. Because it's a relatively recent development, you know. So all the rules we've had in place for hundreds of years about trade, you know, there is no... There is no comparable set of rules and governance arrangements for tech and certainly for the internet. But a lot of commerce is now, of course, done online, e-commerce, it's growing. So enormous part of the economic transactions between states are online now. Uh, information, data, anything you can think about is essentially all online. Okay, so now the problem is this, the internet, for example, no one runs the internet, no one owns the internet, it's an open system. China wants to change the system and put in place a Chinese version of the internet. Now that sounds okay at one level, if it's gonna be more efficient, why not? But the problem is that China wants to impose its values and rules on the future internet. So it will be command-driven internet where in the hardware and the architecture of the, of the system, you will have things like sh uh, shut up commands, which means uh, I, as the governing authority, will deny you access to the internet or constrain what you mm. can do, not just in a regulatory sense, but it will be built into the hardware. So these are sorts of the differences that are causing tension. And the only way around that is to actually work out a set of rules that everyone can live with. There's gonna have to be compromises along the way but it has to be done. Otherwise, you're just going to have a worsening of the situation with two competing views about how the internet should work. Okay, what about cyber warfare? Because this is a new part of the battlefield. Um, recommendation on cybersecurity. Yeah, well on cybersecurity, I think we have to have a purpose-built dialogue uh, to look at cyber governance. There isn't one. It has to be an international uh, organization that sets the rules on cyberspace that every country can adhere to. And that's, there is no uh, organization that does that. We need to have one. Uh, that's as a, as a, as a sort of necessary first step. 
So it, it just shows us how at the how chaotic this is at the moment and the risks embedded uh, in a system which is essentially anarchic. What about the other issue you raise in your paper about this talk of hard decoupling? Uh, tell us more about decoupling. I mean, and you talk about managed decoupling. How on earth do you do managed decoupling when you're talking about these two great powers with these trade tensions? Well, decoupling has become now quite topical and controversial. So what we mean by decoupling is that in the global, the old globalised world, everyone was connected. There was just-in-time supply. So if you wanted something, you didn't need to produce it in your own country. You just went and got it because it would be delivered to, to you from somewhere in 48 hours and very efficiently. So businesses liked that. So that was great. Now we're starting to realise the flaws in that system, right? And the, the coronavirus has exposed those even more. So what we're suddenly realising is that just in time is terrific if there's no problems, right? But if you have geopolitical tension, you have a pandemic, suddenly this stuff is not there and you need it now, tomorrow. So look at the, um, the personal health equipment, things like that. So many examples. All right. So the global supply chains. The global supply chain. Now... So the argument now is by some people who will say, okay, in order to become more self-reliant and more resilient, we have to cut ourselves off from these global supply chains and make more things in our own country. And the second element of that is, and in terms of the US-China rivalry, the US realizes it's become too dependent on China for a whole range of strategic uh, commodities. It wants to reduce that reliance and that's what it's, so it's starting to decouple or separate from that supply chain, which is basically very China dependent. So my argument is that some degree of decoupling or separation is necessary to preserve the economic sovereignty of democracies. Because if we're too dependent on China, China will use that as a lever against democracy. Okay, but where does the WTO fit into this? China's been part of the World Trade Organization for the best part of 20 years, the WTO. Yeah, well, the WTO, the World Trade Organization, is basically a failing organization. Created by the West in the end of the Second World War, it is not able to manage a club of members which has democracies and authoritarian states in it. If you go back to the end of the Second World War, the general agreement of tariffs and trades was essentially democracies, mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. communist countries had their own Comic-Con set up. Mm -hmm. So, separated. Now China's in, and of course it wants to change the WTO, and it has. So the argument is that, and, and I think this is right, China has bent the rules to favour its own mercantilist approach to, uh, to economic exchange, right? So the WTO is ailing its moribund, but you've got two choices. You either fix it or you replace it. Mm -hmm. Fixing it will require the US and China to work together. It's gonna to be hard, but not impossible. So my preference would be to fix it because it works for everybody else. Mm -hmm. Otherwise you have a power-based trading system, which is not fair or equitable, right? So as the WTO is the only organization that is international and it can adjudicate disputes in an objective way. Otherwise, it's whoever's the biggest gorilla on the block gets what it wants and the rest of us suffer. So I prefer to reform the WTO, but if it can't be reformed, it needs to be replaced. Okay, reforming it though, but how could anyone seriously have faith in a rules-based liberal multilateral trade order given that China, and I think India, played the predominant role in sinking the Doha 
multilateral trade round in 2008. And of course, in Washington, both Democrats and Republicans have clearly adopted a more protectionist mentality. Why have faith in this multilateral trade order? Because the alternative is worse. Okay, so the alternative is if you don't have an international, a reasonably open free trading system, which is what we still got, even though there are problems, okay, then what do we do? Go back to the 1930s where we have just protectionism, you know? And we've been down that route and it led the war, by the way, Second World War, it was a major contributing factor. So let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's look at what the multilateral trading system can still offer, and it's a lot. The globalization has brought a lot of benefits. Yes, it's got its flaws. You don't throw the whole thing out. You look at what needs to be fixed, uh, and, then, and then there may be scope for some degree of decoupling, more greater, greater national uh, self-reliance and resilience, but you still want to retain the best elements of the multilateral trading system. The alternative is worse. Okay, uh, and you're saying also in your paper that if the United States and China can't reach an agreement, you suggest that the middle powers need to fill the void. What does that mean? Well, what I mean is that if the US and China can't accommodate each other's interests and they go down the route of an escalating rivalry, then the rest of us need to think, need to stand up and basically bring pressure to bear on both the US and China to reach some kind of accommodation or compromise. So external pressure does matter. Both China and the United States are powerful, but they can't run the world themselves, nor can the two of them. So other countries do matter. And this is, so middle powers in particular, significant economies like Australia, Japan is now considered a, a middle power, okay? Uh, other countries like that, the European states, Germany, France, England, they should bang together and use their combined leverage to make changes to the system, to the flawed system, and to get the US and China to sit down and address some of these issues, particularly the, the Cold War problem. Of course, Alan, your argument is premised uh, on the view that China's rise will continue dramatically. Uh, but is there a danger that many of us are downplaying China's very real weaknesses and limitations? I think of its debt, uh, demography, which is a ticking bomb, um, its military capacities beyond cyber and ballistic missile technology has limited reach, arguably. Uh, are we overstating China's rise, Alan? Well, let me just answer that in two ways. First of all, just to clarify, my premise is not that China is going to rise, continue to rise inexorably. In fact, I've argued the opposite. Oh. I've argued that actually we've already seen peak China. Well, why so worried then? <laughs> well, because the well, because the more insecure countries are, okay, the more of the problem that can cause too. So you can have problems from overconfident, overreaching countries mm -hmm. and, and countries feeling insecure and under pressure. You can get conflict either way. But my premise, so I just want to clarify that I think that uh, I'm not predicting that China is going to collapse or anything, but I think that the argument that China is going to rule the world inexorably become number one is not the case. There are all sorts of reasons why. So let me come to the, the points that you made. Absolutely, there are a lot of constraints on China. So while we shouldn't demonise China, we shouldn't make it out to be 10 feet tall. It's not. It's got a lot of weaknesses and problems. Okay, so let's just talk about some of those. The biggest one confronting them in the medium term is demographic, demographic decline. They are already the world's, the, the oldest country in the world. 
and they don't have the social security networks that we have in the West, for example. So that's a big concern for them, how they manage the aging population and what it does for what used to be called the demographic dividend. This is the hundreds of millions of young people flooding into their economy, providing cheap labor. That era is almost over. So they've got demographic constraints on them. There are environmental problems in China. You know, they have got a lot of geopolitical problems now. If you look three years ago, everything looked terrific. From a Chinese perspective now, they've got their fires on all fronts. Hong Kong, Taiwan, the US, they've got problems, Australia, you know, they've got problems popping up everywhere. So suddenly that's changed the ballpark for them. So they're under a lot of pressure now. Uh, now, yes, they're a formidable country. They're still they're definitely an economic superpower and, and, and a technological one too. But the constraints now are growing and it's going to be much more difficult for them. Now, the problem with that is that Xi Jinping is likely to take China down a more nationalist road. When you've got problems at home and abroad, okay, you blame the foreigners. Uh, and there's this suggestion that's already starting to happen. So there's going to be blowback from that. So that actually could be worse than a confident growing China. Okay, so China's a country that is pumped up on nationalism and that could create problems for us, even if it's more inward looking. But uh, what are the consequences here for Australia? As you well know, Australia benefits from a regional status quo. And uh, clearly we have uh, the best of both worlds over the last 25 years. We've had unconstrained trade with China. And of course we have a very close security alliance with our great and powerful friend as Robert Menzies once described the United States. What does all this mean for Australia? Well, it's pretty much bad news for Australia, whichever way you look at it. Right? So we've had a very benevolent period uh, of 50, 60 years now where we benefited from China's rise and the US's position as number one in the world. Now, both are reversing. So what we now have is a hostile relationship with our major trading partner, and we're having to deal with our major ally, which is under Trump, self-interested and capricious, right? So that's a negative. Both of those relationships are now moving down towards, moving down negative paths, okay? We can still come out of this, but it's not good news. Now, second thing is this. At the very time when we're going to this new era of geopolitical uncertainty, <clears throat> we've just been basically slammed by the coronavirus, and we are now likely to have not only our most challenging security environment since the Second World War, but we are now facing the greatest economic setback since the Great Depression, and it was all happening at once. Mm. So this is not good news. Now, there are ways in which a smart and agile com government can navigate this, but it's going to be very testing. Professor John Mearsheimer, the distinguished political scientist from the University of Chicago, who's been a guest here at CIS, he argues that if indeed China's rise continues dramatically, um, then Washington will go to great lengths to stop China from dominating the region and Uncle Sam will go to great lengths to ensure a coalition of states, including Australia, should form a balancing coalition to contain that rising China. Your response? Yes, the US will want to do that, but it's not as easy as it sounds. <clears throat> First of all, finding a coalition 
of like-minded countries opposed to China's domination of the region is going to be very difficult to put together because China has so much coercive power economically, financially and geopolitically. So even if small Southeast Asian states is inclined to think the way the United States is, it's not going to put its head up above the parapet because China is going to slam dunk it. And that's a key difference between this Cold War and the other Cold War. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a big difference. Secondly, the other problem is this. Smart leadership by the US might get them a long way down that track. But, you know, you can't assume that at the moment. Yes, but then again, uh, there's not much smart leadership in Beijing. I mean, surely these tariffs that uh, Beijing has imposed on Australia, Bali, uh, um, beef, potentially even coal, according to the Sydney Morning Herald in recent weeks, um, doesn't that just push Australia closer to the American camp? Yeah, I, I think there's, that's true. I, I, my argument is that what China has been doing um, using this coercive power is quite, quite counterproductive to its own interests in the longer term. That's how I would see, but I don't think that's the way it's seen in Beijing. I think Xi's view is that we now have the power and we're going to use it in our interests. And we don't really care what smaller countries think, et cetera, because it doesn't matter. You know, we're a big power and the only power we're really worried about is the United States. And we now recognize that we're in essentially a Cold War with the US. So we are now adjusting our policies. So anybody who aligns themselves with the United States overtly, like Australia, we're going to we're going to teach them a lesson. Mm. Okay. Let's hear another view. Hugh White, Professor of Strategic <laughs> Studies at ANU, former Deputy Defence Secretary, whom you've known for many years. Um, he debated John Mearsheimer in Canberra at a CIS event in front of 500 people, and he makes the argument that Australia's future will be dominated by China, and he points to Treasury figures that show that the Chinese economy will be 80% bigger than America's within a dozen years. Now, admittedly, this was a year or two ago before the pandemic, but his argument in recent times has been that China's more than likely going to turn this pandemic into an opportunity to extend its reach and influence. And in that environment, Canberra, according to Hugh Wright, must prepare for this new strategic terrain in the wake of America's declining leadership. And we in Australia, Alan, this is Hugh White, would be unwise to support Washington in a confrontation with China. America may not win. Mm. Well, I probably disagree in just about all that. So let me just <laughs> unpack this for you. Um, first of all, the assumption that China will dominate the region and, and therefore Australia can't afford to alienate China uh, is certainly open to contestation, right? There are, we've already touched on it. There are a lot of reasons why China won't become number one, okay? But even if it were to become a number one, what does that actually mean? It means it would have the largest economy, but it's got 1.4 billion people. So that's not the only measure that matters, right? And let's remember that we're extrapolating from current trends and just drawing the line straight up. Well, already the COVID-19 has flattened the growth prospects for China for at least the next year. So there are a whole lot of, yeah, there are a whole, this, it's a sort of a speculation really about where China is going to be vis-a-vis -vis everybody else. The second thing is this, the other assumption is US decline. Now I would dispute that too. Um, well, yeah. What's the empirical evidence of US decline? Yes, the US might be pulling back under Trump, 
uh, but that's a policy decision. If you look at all the uh, indicators of national power, the US is still leading on most of them, right? Yes, China's closing the gap, but the US is now starting to ramp up. So let's just see what happens over the next 10 years. And the third point is this, it's always, Australian governments have to act in Australia's interests, you know? Why do we have an alliance with the United States? Because it's in our interest to do so. It's not because somehow we want to be subservient to another you know, great and powerful friend. It's about we see our interests coinciding most of the time with the United States and in some areas with China as well. But the more autocratic China becomes, the less we will see a congruence of views with China. And we will find our own path. And it will cost us and it will hurt us a lot, but we will do it. Because okay. there's no other choice. Final question then, Alan. Uh, does your CIS thesis, does it have a happy ending? Okay, that's a tough question to, to answer. Right at the moment, Tom, it hard, it's hard to be optimistic. But <clears throat> So you've got to look beyond the next year or two, okay? So I'll leave you with this thought. At the height of the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States, pessimists were predicting the end of the world, you know, a nuclear war. It didn't happen. We came close. It didn't happen because both countries realised after a period of time that they needed to have a minimum level of cooperation in terms of self-preservation. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I think the US and China will discover that at some stage. And so the CIS, uh, the recommendations in the CIS paper are designed to be a blueprint for the US and China when they're ready to act as to how they could do it. And there's also a blueprint for the rest of the world as to the role that we can play in helping to ameliorate the tensions of a, or the worst case outcomes of a Cold War. Alan, great to be with you at CIS again. Pleasure. Thanks, Tom. And of course, the CIS publication that Alan DuPont and I have just been talking about, it's titled Mitigating the New Cold War, Managing US-China Trade, Tech and Geopolitical Conflict. And if you're interested in any of our other China-related videos, please tune into our CIS YouTube channel from our recent events. You can see John Mearsheimer versus Kishore Mabulbani on whether China has won in the wake of the pandemic. You don't want to miss that one. John Mearsheimer versus Hugh White on Australia's Choice. That was in front of more than 500 people in Canberra. And on February 19, we had a lively panel discussion on China and the coronavirus. The question was, Will this be Communist China's Chernobyl moment? I'm Tom Switzer. I'm from CIS. You can always check out our sites, cis.org.au, and I hope you can tune in again next time. <laughs>